One thing that really is great for multifamily is they have access to the Freddie and Fannie loans. So today there's still multifamily deals selling, even though the banks have really pulled back, but and the debt funds have as well. But Fannie and Freddie are just lending sort of business as usual. So on any multifamily deal, you can go get a five or 10 year fixed rate loan around 6%. If it's five units or more from uh, Fannie or Freddie, where if you're in retail or office or these other product types, all, well, most of the banks, their pencils down, they're they're not getting loan payoffs. Uh, and, you know, so they don't they don't have new money to put out and they're worried about losing deposits and being in trouble. So they're just they're they've really pulled back. And so that's a huge advantage multifamily has. Welcome to the Income Flip podcast, podcast about real estate entrepreneurs, visionaries, and the strategies behind the legacies they're creating. I'm your host, Rob Chavez. And on today's episode, I have Drew Brenneman with me from Brenneman Capital. Now, Drew started his investment career at the tender age of 19 when he went to college and noticed that there was a need for student housing. So what did he do? Like any good entrepreneur, he bought a house and put his friends in it and started making money. That single decision has led him down a path where today he owns over $200 million worth of real estate assets, primarily in the multifamily space, and he's just getting started. Come listen in on why he chose the multifamily space to create his income flip and where he's actively investing in today's market. Grid, guess what? Today I've got Drew Brenneman with me. He's actually in Austin, Texas right now, but originally, Drew, where are you from? You were telling me before. Um, yeah, I'm from the Milwaukee area. Both my parents were teachers in Milwaukee, uh, then went to college at UW-Madison. Lived in the Midwest my whole life until uh, two months ago. So now I'm, a, now I'm a Texan. Now you're a Texan. Well, let's go back in time a little bit. And, and I had a lot of fun going in and doing a little bit of research on your background. And I saw that when you were 19 years old, you bought your first real estate investment. And I'd like to kind of start there. And, uh, and today, you know, when I went on your site, I mean, you've got $200 million under, under management right now. You've got these beautiful apartment buildings, multifamily uh, buildings that, that they've got like a modern bent to them, which I love. And so I just want to understand how you started and what brought you to, to kind of like the, that multifamily space and, and just kind of unpack that. You know, our listeners want to understand how to create passive income through real estate and, and you're well on, well on your way there. And, and so, uh, so let's, let's start at the beginning. 19, you decided you're going to buy a piece of property. How did that come about? Well, it's, it was a similar journey to, to the listeners and, uh, uh, members in your network where they, you know, I started an inter- internet business when I was in high school. I was selling items within these online video games, uh, just just flipping the items. So you, uh, sometimes like a armor set or a ring would sell for $20 on eBay, sometimes for 10. So when it was selling for 10, I'd buy it and then I'd resell it for 20. Um, and I made uh, quite a bit of money for a high schooler who because I had no bills, so I was able to save it all. So over the course of four years, I made like around eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, and I saved all of it. So I was kind of in a similar spot, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, the folks you help. Where I was thinking, what should I do with this money? So I was lucky in that regard, where uh, I started reading the books people, you know, normally read when they're like forty. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, you know, as a teenager and Think and Grow Rich and Intelligent Investor and all those books, and. You know, really sort of, uh, and my parents, like I said, they're both teachers. They, they were, 
um, big on saving and investing in mutual funds. You know, that's what they, that's how they uh, funded their retirement. They obviously had, I guess they had pensions as well, but they, so there was a lot of talk about mutual funds, but not any other, I didn't know any real estate investors or entrepreneurs or anything. So I just kind of started out looking at stocks and mutual funds. And I did that for, you know, a year. And in that year, the market, I think, either it went down or at least the stuff I picked went down. And I'm like, this is like, I have no control. Um, you just, it's just like an appreciation play for the most part, the dividends are nothing. Uh, there's, there's such a small amount of money. And, and so I started looking at what else was out there. I read a, remember, um, when the light bulb really went off for me in real estate, I was reading a book called, uh, just it's in called investing in real estate by Gary Eldred. And that book is not as much like the, uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad's a great book in terms of getting like your mindset right, but I don't remember, and I read it like 20 years ago now, but I don't remember, there's not like a lot of tactics in that. It's more just kind of getting your mind thinking like there's more than just being an employee out there. You could mm -hmm. be a full-time investor. You could have a small business where it's just you. You could have a large business. Like there's other things you can do. Um, and one one point that I that I, I either read in Rich Dad Poor Dad that I think was really important was it's actually safer from an income standpoint to have either your own, say, small business or your own investments that are making money, like real estate that you own, you you control, or you're getting passive income from, than a job. So, you know, if anyone's ever been laid off or fired, they know what I'm talking about. Your your income can turn to zero at your job overnight, and um, you know, and so that whereas if you have a, a portfolio of properties, let's say. You know, really, the only way that could go turn get turned to zero is just with some never before in time happened to the market. You know, where so because even in two thousand eight, I mean, people still were paying rent. I mean, rents dropped, so did occupancies, but it wasn't like it just went to zero like it could if you got um, fired. So, and I I really liked what was in that book in terms of just explaining how it worked. Where it was very simple in um, the Gary Eldred book, where you you make money from cash flow, paying your loan down. And then the light bulb really went off for me when he was talking about appreciation. The example was, is you put 10% down on a duplex. Let's say it goes up 3% a year. That's a 30% per year return on your equity. And I thought, wow, that's really, it's oversimplified. And, you know, normally you don't put down 10%, you put more down. But, mm -hmm. you know, let's say you put 20% down, that happens. I mean, that's still, you know, a 15% return. And so that would be... Um, you know, so that that was really a light bulb moment for me where I thought, wow, the returns could be quite high in this. And then you also have cash flow and you get the tax breaks and everything as well. It's not correlated with other investments or has a low correlation with stocks and bonds. So I really liked it. And so, you know, I was, yeah, 17 or 18 when I was reading that book and I um, was going to go to UW-Madison for college. I already had um, enrolled there or uh, whatever it's called, agreed to go, uh, was accepted. And so I, I started looking at duplexes just online, little rental properties, and thought, once I go there, I'm going to get a realtor, I'm going to buy a deal. And I'm going to move into it, I'll rent out one of the units, and then take one of the bedrooms and the other units and just rent out the other bedrooms to my friends. And that's what I did. So I bought my first deal, yeah, when I was 19 uh, as a freshman. And and so, uh, and then, yeah, for the uh, HGTV thing, that was, um, they came, that was something I didn't seek out. Like I was... In the, uh, you know, pretty nervous to do anything like that. I'm not really like a promotional person, but they were, they came to like the local brokerage offices and they said like, do you have any interesting clients? We're doing a show 
doing different markets and showing what you get for the money in different cities. So I was the quarter million dollar house in Madison. It was an interesting show because on that show, they also, I forgot the other cities, but one of them was Los Angeles. And, you know, you didn't, you didn't get much in 2005, you know. Uh, it was like a down payment. For, yeah. Your was, down payment in LA is $250,000. Yeah. it's They found a studio somewhere, you know, for a quarter million uh, in LA to highlight. But yeah, it wasn't, wasn't much. And I had a, uh, you know, a five bedroom duplex, you know, with uh, a yard and parking to, to show off that had just been renovated. Okay. So that was 2005 when that was created, right? Exactly. Because yep. I, 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 I remember, I, I remember hearing like in the in the video they talk about how the interest rates locked for like three three years and then it it's going to go up after that. I was like, oh yeah, okay. He got he got uh, a three year lock right at a lower interest rate. Did it did that actually turn out for you? What happened with that investment? Turned out great. I sold it in a year and I, I bought it for two twenty and I sold it for two seventy. You know, I increased the income at the property a lot and that's. Um, I didn't know it at the time, you know, I was so new. Like when I bought it, I was just focused on finding something at that was cash flow positive. So I spent a lot of time understanding the rents and expenses and then understanding what was the prevailing gross rent multiplier in the market. Mm-hmm. So I was paying a fair price uh, for it, for the rents that were there. And that was it. I didn't really want to overcomplicate it. I thought, okay, if I overpay, then I'll just hold it and I'll cash flow and I'll you know, eventually it'll go up and it'll be fine. It wouldn't be, I won't kill it on this deal, but I'm also not going to lose money. Uh, but ended up, I did buy it at the right gross rent multiplier and I was able to get more uh, rent than I thought. And then the market continued to improve. And so, um, you know, being a teenager, I was like, all right, I'll just take the profit and move on. Um, but the thing too, with, I'd say just on, on a, uh, a shorter, uh, a fixed rate term that's, you know, shorter, three or five years, I wouldn't personally, I, I I wouldn't shy away from that. And I've done over 40 real estate deals now. Um, and like you mentioned, bought over, uh, bought like a quarter billion dollars of property that I, all those deals I sourced and raised the debt and equity on. Um, really what's more concerning from uh, when you finance deals is the actual loan term or when your maturity is. So if that was a three-year loan and also was a, had a maturity in year three, so you have to either pay the property off or sell it or refinance. Like that's where people get into trouble. Um, and like the most famous example of that is general growth properties. One of the biggest retail REITs in the in owners in the world, they went uh, bankrupt in 2009 because they had almost, they had over half their debt uh, coming due, I think that year. So then there was no no lenders. And uh, and so then they, they were out of business. But that do was- you, do, you, do, you, do you expect some of that to be happening here shortly? With I I actually kind of it depend it really only in certain certain uh certain product types in certain parts of the country because most uh, a lot of the deals let's say multifamily around the country the number one lender is Fannie and Freddie by a wide margin they do more lending than any other lender by a factor of two like I think they're somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to seventy percent of the financing market uh, for multifamily and they do. Th- you know, per, primarily people are doing five or 10 year uh, either floating rate or fixed rate loans. But if you do a floating rate, they force you to buy an interest rate cap. So, you know, everyone has a lot of loan term. And I think people got into trouble before in 2008 because you had a lot of um, you had a lot of people that had didn't have a lot of loan term. 
they had all had flo- you know floating rate loans but the rates were a lot higher back then i mean i i remember borrowing in the sevens and eights on some of these deals and so it's a little different picture if you're doing a uh eight percent interest loan that comes due next year and your business plan was to buy this apartment and turn it into condominiums and then the condominium market evaporates so uh, there will be distress but it's going to be in my opinion it's going to be really around office properties and then uh i think industrial and retail is is good there's not going to be much distress there uh depending i mean some retails just going to be more of the same where big box retails not hasn't been a good place to be for uh over a decade now but small shop retail is uh, we have a few of those properties still that i bought around 2010 and i mean every every year rents are higher like in the market and there's still a lot of demand for those in multifamily the distress is going to come around those uh the markets where mo- it's like every property sold in the last couple years and people were doing those three-year term bridge loans uh, from mm-hmm. debt funds where they were, um, and these were common in real estate syndications. It was the most common financing structure because it's non-recourse uh, loan dollars that also you have construction funding. So if you were investing in a deal in, you know, wherever, primarily in the Sunbelt where they're going to buy it, renovate it, and then, you know, sell it, like the odds are that was with a debt fund loan that um, was at a higher LTV and, and then uh, was only a three-year term. So I think really it's more around uh, the loan term uh, and then they're going to face, you know, say you bought it in 2021, your loan's going to mature in 2024 and, you know, let's say you bought 70% uh, LTV, you know, is with the financing you put on when you bought it, then you, you know, values dropped, you know, plus or minus 20%, 30% in some areas, your property might just be worth a debt if you didn't do anything to add value. And so now you got to do a cash in refi or sell it at a loss. So that, mm-hmm. but then uh, I know it's a long answer, but then there's also been so few deals for sale where uh, I know in New York, roughly they're down uh, about 70% in terms of transactions. Uh, Phoenix, it's in the seventies, uh, which is Phoenix is a market we invest in. Mm-hmm. So the the odd thing that's happening is, let's say uh, there was a deal where someone took it out in Phoenix to sell and they're going to sell it at a loss. There were over 10 offers on it and we, we bid on it and underwrote it. And that got priced to where on our numbers, the buyer will make less than a 10% IRR, um, which if people aren't familiar with IRRs, it's a time-weighted version of annual return. So it's just like they're accepting a return on a deal you need to renovate that's less than 10% a year, according to our numbers. So the odd thing is technically, yeah, I guess that's a distressed deal. The guy's loan's coming due, he's going to sell it at a loss. But that's literally one of the only deals that's selling right now. So then it got a ton of offers on it and an action on it. So interesting. interesting. What, what, uh, internal rate of return are you looking for from, from the assets that you're purchasing purchasing? Yeah. It depends on the risk profile, but let's really, I'd say 14 or 15% deal level IRR. Mm -hmm. And that's not out there in today's market, unless Mm -hmm. you're really buying in a, uh, tough locations or, very old property types but generally our business yeah today is we're buying multifamily properties that are five you know units if they're in let's say chicago on up to you know a hundred some units if it's in texas or phoenix and then we're we're buying it we're renovating it we're we're forcing the appreciation by making the uh the rents and the net operating income higher um and then in generally those kind of deals if you you know we we've been targeting a 15 but we haven't bought anything in a year so mm-hmm. it's the sellers are they they don't need to 
sell yet for the most part. You know, even if you put that loan on in 2021 or 2022, you still got, if it was that three-year loan I'm talking about, they still have more term. They're still holding out for rents to go up, rates to drop, something to change. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what we're solving too. And then tr uh, historically, our average on our sold deals, we have a 25% IRR as our average return on a, on a five-year average hold. So just around a, um, just over a two uh, equity multiple. So, but prior to this, we were doing a lot of uh, buying existing deals that did not need renovation, but the rents were just below market. You know, mm -hmm. we I did in Chicago um, fifteen uh, cap full equity cash out refinances in a row, and on most of those deals, only one we did a gut rehab on. All the others were uh, either doing real small stuff, buying a deal that was maybe built ten years ago, it just feels a little older, has black appliances, and not uh, like a granite or quartz countertop and doing you know simple stuff getting rid of the carpet putting in vinyl repainting all the walls a nice light gray mm. stainless appliances so not a heavy rehab you know like it already had laundry and forced air heating and cooling and the right plumbing and electric but yeah in all those deals we were able to you know raise the rents over 20 percent, really lift the noi a lot and then refinance out all of our equity without doing a ton of renovations that's not really available in the market now because rents um the rent growth has plateaued so everyone even if your rents were below market you kind of caught up to it the last couple of years caught up mm -hmm. to market and then interest rates are higher so then uh these loans are not only sized by a loan to value threshold but also a debt service coverage uh requirement so um just to explain that kind of simply basically if your interest rate is is higher you can't borrow as much money, even if the value stayed the same, because they're looking for a, a 20 or 25% cushion, um, you know, a, above the, the loan, the annual principal and interest payment uh, in terms of the net, net income from the property. So if a property made, um, let's say, $125,000 a year uh, of net operating income, the lender is going to say, okay, I want to be at a 1.25 debt service coverage ratio, which means I'm only going to size a loan where the pay loan payment will be $100,000 a year mm -hmm. in that example. So and if your interest rate goes up, obviously you can't borrow as much if you, the, you can only pay $100,000 max on the mortgage. So um, so then that's also been an interesting you know, thing too, where now uh, not a, prices fell, so that's, that's great potentially as a buyer, but the loan proceeds fell by so much, it's still hard to make these deals work. So. That begs the question. Um, I see that when I went on your website, you're sourcing a lot of deals offline, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your process around that. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's going to be simpler than you think. Really, it's um, uh, it's you the the deals we buy, the size that we buy, almost every deal is uh, has a broker attached to it. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, myself and everybody that's you know owns larger multifamily deals. They know you get a higher price with a broker. I mean, just think if you were gonna offer on something and there's only one of it and if you know no one else is looking at it like how are you going to approach that offer okay. or if there's only one and 10 people are bidding on it simultaneously what are you going to do you're going to be faster you're going to offer more like it's your you push yourself more sure it's the option so, deck yeah so most every deal has a broker attached to it but what we've done is we have uh developed close relationships with the brokers in our markets over time and and then getting deals off market from them where they know what kind of stuff we buy. So then if it, and we're talking to them regularly. So then if it comes up like, Hey, this is just like the deal you bought before they'll, they'll send it to us. 
ahead of time. So then that's um, that's how we bought most all of our deals. Mm-hmm. I think across the 40 or so properties we've bought, um, only two have been one of those scenarios where it's a best and final sort of auction scenario where it's like, hey, all the offers are due on this certain date. Then we're going to go back around to the highest couple offers and then see if they'll they'll up it again. Um, and the ones we did buy, there was uh, it was heavy value add available. And so it was kind of, I think we had a a good business plan compared to the other folks probably bidding on it. And that's why we got it. But yeah, most all of the deals have been more just direct off market through a broker. And then the reason we're getting those deals when you're like, what's the system? There's not, the system is actually just be a, be a solid buyer. So a lot of people, they, and I didn't realize this, but I've been uh, selling uh, in Chicago. I sold three deals in 2021 and then one this year, one last year, got a couple on the market now. And on every deal, they're they're retrading you on price over all this little stuff. Things that when I go to a property, I already notice and have in my numbers where I'm walking up to the building, I'm looking at the exterior, I'm looking at the windows, I'm looking at the water heater, the furnace. When we're touring the property, I, you know, I, if we can go on the roof, I'd like to. And I look at the parking lot. So I'm trying to really take in what's going on. So then there's less surprises at and at this point, if a property has a pool, I just assume it's broken. And it's just, <laughs> I joke, if you see a pool, put 50,000 in the spreadsheet. And we do that until we see it's not broken at this mm-hmm. point where I think uh, so far, it's like somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the pools we've uh, we've acquired have needed to be rebuilt. So like, I don't I don't go there assuming the pool is perfect and then asking for money. I, I, I'm doing it in the opposite order. And then... And that makes you a really reliable buyer where I'm not asking mm-hmm. for little ticky tack stuff. Um, uh, on one deal I'm selling now, I'm being asked to like paint a little piece of metal uh, <laughs> and other little stuff where it's like, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, but it's like they're not making it a great experience. It on the creates so much friction, right? There's so much friction in that process. Yeah. So if you're going to buy, you know, obviously you can't be a pushover if the, that you told the roof is new and it's 30 years old needs to be replaced go f- yeah ask for a credit they i mean honestly they lied to you like like it that's makes all the sense in the world but on this the i a lot of times I, you want to think the relationship is bigger than the deal mm-hmm. you know you have different partners on different deals or at least i do or investors so you can't just be a hundred percent only relationship and getting you know just plowing through uh, problems, completely ignoring them, but you need to find a balance. And then that's how you uh, get the deals in the future and get a reputation as a closer. So that's what we've developed where we got a reputation as closers who aren't retrading over ticky tech stuff. We're really communicative uh, where we tell the brokers what we want. And then uh, if they send us something that doesn't fit the box, we tell them what we don't, what we do and don't like about it so they can refine what they're sending us. Uh, which a lot of people don't do. They just um, they they just don't even call the broker back. We get I you know my phone's ringing all day. I'm getting emails all the time, deals for sale. But I if it's kind of in your what similar to what you're looking at, you need to give those brokers feedback so they know what you want. Uh, and then they like the they like the feedback. They like to you know they're calling you. They want to hear hear back. So it's really more you know doing doing those sort of things of what's been able to get us the deals. Uh, cause then, I mean, there's bro, I hear brokers talk where it's like, someone says, I want this, uh, building like this. Then they send it to them and they don't buy it. Yeah. Like if you send me a deal, that's like what I, that's what I want. I'll, I'll always buy it. So, True. Well, I let's, mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I want to understand your, your business thesis, right? 
your buy box? What what is it? What is it that you guys are looking for? What areas? Why? What's the overall thesis of, of what it is that you're building? So uh, at the start of my career, so yeah, I did. I ended up in Madison. I bought the four multifamily deals on my own. And then I moved to Minnesota. I got my first partner there and we bought all commercial properties for the first uh, three or four years and then started buying multifamily again. And we were really, we were generalists, I'd say. We specialized in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market where we were living and then also Chicago. But really, we're doing all product types in those markets. So we were experts, but not experts in uh, one sector. It was really more just being an expert in the city. And what I found is, uh, you know, I've, real estate is very competitive, small side faceted. You got le- you have legal, you have finance, you, all these different things. Uh, the actual physical building you need to know about. And so, what I I've noticed people that do the best is they're they're highly specialized. So we've now specialized in only multifamily, and only multifamily in certain markets and certain types of multifamily. So we're only buying multifamily in uh, in Phoenix. Dallas, Austin, and potentially some still in Chicago that, you know, is built um, since 1980. So more recent than 1980. And that has to do with the plumbing and electrical systems really more than anything. And then it has, uh, is a five to $30 million deal in certain areas of those markets. So we won't just buy anywhere. And we have a location scoring system that pulls in uh, incomes and Uh, growth by zip code that then we kind of can make a map of each market and where you'd want to where you'd want to buy and then obviously go to the market and make sure that sort of lines up and then and then that's a value add deal because when people throw around this term value add but really all that is is that if let's say you buy a deal that's there's nothing to do to it it's a finished property and you pay the sort of appropriate cap rate or gross or multiplier for it from there, you're just going to get the return of the market, not any better. So you're not at, you're not you have no sort of advantage or ex- additional return. And in some of these markets I bought in, you know, in the Twin Cities and in Chicago, the market hasn't really done much. I think Chicago apartment prices have been pretty flat, uh, 2015 to 2023. But on our deals, we're doing cash out refinances, full amount. We're generating 20 plus IRRs. It's because we're creating the value. So then. I want deals that meet all that criteria I said, but also then have room to, uh, to you know, either renovate it or just move the rents to market rates that are much higher. So like that deal I was talking about that we bid on that got priced to a 10 IRR, you know, that was a deal in Tempe, Arizona that would uh, was built in the 1980s that would require, require a renovation, uh, not a gut rehab, but just adding laundry, redoing the kitchens and bathrooms, new vinyl flooring and uh, paint and be out. And so that was a, um, like, those are the opportunities we want to do. And multifamily was uh, sort of like it's something we th- I thought a lot about and what to specialize in. Because uh, the commercial deals we, we did have gone, have gone really well, but there's a lot of volatility with commercial property where if all the deals we have, we have between two to six tenants. So you lose a tenant and, you know, if you only have two tenants, now, now your property is losing money. Mm-hmm. And where with apartments, you know, you... You know, if you've got eight unit, you got eight different units paying or, you know, it's a 20 unit and you lose a tenant, it's not hard to refill it. And you still got the other, you know, if it's 20 unit, 19 ones uh, full. And so I look back to and we, we calculated the data where uh, there's this index. It's uh, 
it's called NACREF. It's a real estate trade group, uh, National Council of uh, Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries. But they um, they have data that's supposed that's supposed to kind of show like what private real estate's done, and they have that by uh, property type. So we looked at the data, and from 1990 to 2020, multifamily it had the highest returns for all product types. So compared to industrial or office or retail, uh, for all hold scenarios. So you could have held the property for three years, five, seven, ten. Every scenario over that 30-year period, multifamily was literally the highest for every single one of them and had the lowest uh, volatility of returns for every scenario, except there was, I think, one where uh, either retail or industrial had lower volatility, but then also lower returns. Mm. And so, yeah, we I like that you uh, it's easy to re-rent, had the highest returns, lowest volatility. I like how the income was diversified across a bunch of different tenants working at different places. I mean, even during COVID, we collected, you know, 99% of our apartment rent uh, and weren't really having any any issues. But I, and I spent like all my time talking to the commercial tenants because they all needed some deal or were closed. And um, and then obviously, like current renters are renting longer. You know, homes are uh, not getting any cheaper, you know, uh, to build at least. You know, we'll see what happens with interest rates and how much prices move. But it's hard to buy a home, you know, back in the old days, you know, you hear your parents or whoever bought a house for 10 grand and, you know, it's not, not like that anymore. Um, and so, um, you know, you have a big, big pool of people renting and renting for longer. And I really like the lease term being one year. It's like the perfect amount of time, you know, hotels, you got to re-rent it every day. Uh, and then these commercial leases that are five or 10 years, I mean, that sounds good, but then if inflation starts running and you're capped at two or 3% per year increases, mm. that's not, not ideal. And then the, uh, the debt landscape, you know, one thing right now when you're talking about where's the distress um, and it's there'd be some in multifamily, but it'll be all the, the people who did the debt fund loans. There won't be any if you use the agencies. So mm -hmm. one thing that really is great for multifamily is they have access to the Freddie and Fannie loans. So, <clears throat> you know, today there's still multifamily deals selling, even though the banks have really pulled back, uh, but and the debt funds have as well. But Fannie and Freddie are just lending sort of business as usual. So on any multifamily deal, you can go get a five or 10 year fixed rate loan around 6%. Uh, if, if it's five units or more from uh, Fannie or Freddie, where if you're in retail or office or these other product types, all, well, most of the banks, their pencils down, they're, they're not getting loan payoffs. Uh, and, you know, so they don't, they don't have new money to put out and they're worried about losing deposits and being in trouble. So they're just, they're just, uh, they're, they've really pulled back. And so that's a huge advantage multifamily has at, at times like this. What do you think is the lowest hanging fruit for value add when it comes to looking at a multifamily property, right? When you're going in, I know every property is different, every situation, but there's probably, you've probably found there's some really simple things to do to add value when you're just approaching yeah, I think the answer might even be simpler than what you're thinking about. A lot of our best deals, there's been no construction involved. I know, I think you're saying like the best return is, you know, switching the light fixtures or something. The best returns actually probably find a deal that got rented out uh, outside of the peak leasing season. So let's mm -hmm. say in Chicago, nobody wants to, the rental market, you get way higher rents. I'd say five to 20% higher if you rent your unit between April 1st and September 1st, mm -hmm. uh, compared to if you're renting in November, December, January, February, 
Yeah, that's just all has to do with holidays and weather. And, uh, you know, Chicago gets a lot of people graduating from all those uh, Big Ten schools and moving every May. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, peak rents are in May. So if you so some of our, the best deals I've done have been buying a brand new building that they released out in December, mm-hmm. buying it and then working out deals with all the tenants and the leases in the prime season. And then uh, over time, getting the rents to to true market, being able to rent them in the in the right season. And it depends in every city that's Chicago and like in Phoenix, for example, it's a little different where they they have a drop off around the Thanksgiving and Christmas time. And then their slow season actually is starting right about now once it's, uh, it's triple digits for the next uh, three, four months. Nobody wants to move when it's 115 out. So like it's so then so there, you know, then I, if you see a deal that they leased it all up in July or December, same thing, try to, you know, get that all in the late winter, spring fall and uh so the, i'd say that's actually the best best play and you don't need to worry about changing light fixtures or doing anything um, interesting but if if it is physical though it's i would say it's actually the paint colors you could do a lot just painting it a nice light gray uh versus just like a a color that's way too dark making it seem smaller or uh just darker or or you know the builder white you know that building the, the ones we'd usually buy from the builder it's like yeah they just Painted the walls white with the flat paint. Same thing as like a ceiling paint almost. And um, so that that's something we would always do too. Come in okay. with we got we got our our grays all picked out already. How do you how do you feel about putting in laundries into into facilities that don't have them? Deploys? Yeah, well, we're doing that uh, a lot of a few of the deals we bought we've had they've had a uh, on site laundry room and then we're adding in unit laundry. That's a really nice value add, but that's a lot more work that you know. So that's why that wasn't my first one. But yeah, got every. It. Every property I own has laundry uh, in the units or we bought it and are actively adding it to the units right now. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So uh, what I got was just talking to the brokers, right? The brokers control all the inventory out there. They should. And then being a good buyer as being um, somebody that's just going to to buy what they what you said you're going to buy. If somebody brings you a deal, hey, like you're going to move on that, right? Being a good buyer. And you like, it sounds like there are very particular markets that you've been focused on. Are there any markets that you've got your eye on moving forward over the next five to 10 years, right? So right now you're in Phoenix, right? You're in, are you in Austin? Did you say you're in Austin well, as well? Well, I, I live in Austin and I'd say okay. to just pick up on it, we're, we're moving the business, if you will, to the markets we want to be in for the next five or 10 years. Okay. So multifamily, especially, it's kind of simple where you you want to be buying where the people are going mm-hmm. and the populations are growing in all these business friendly states with the good weather. It's 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 actually not more complicated than that. It's already the places you already know, Arizona, Texas, Florida, you know, around Atlanta, you know, the Carolinas, Nashville, like that's that's where everybody's going. And uh, and so in a lot of times, too, what's interesting is the knock on those markets is there's a lot of supply. But right now, a lot of the proposed projects are not are not getting started. They're they're not be able to get equity because the investors are because the returns dropped because prices dropped and interest rates went up. So mm-hmm. now they're they're not able to raise the equity. And also their their construction lenders, these banks are saying, you know what, we're uh, we don't want to make this loan now. Let's like let's wait a year. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these proposed projects are not going to happen. And um you know, I was in Phoenix earlier this week and we were they were talking to the brokers and 
everyone was saying the same thing where it's this this is either not going to get built or if it does it's all going to be built by 2025 and then there's going to be this huge gap where nothing there's nothing going to be delivered because no one's starting new projects now and this is going to be like this for a couple years where nothing nothing new is going to start so that's always been the the knock on those markets but a lot of that stuff's not going to get built and then also too we don't buy the brand new shiny class a stuff anyways and that's really obviously if you're building new like everyone just builds the nicest thing possible because you've got to buy a countertop anyways you might as well buy a, a quartz one compared to a laminate if you're just going um starting from scratch so then um you know that's the other thing is like these all the new supplies at that highest price point and you know a lot of times the deals we're buying they're like a thousand dollars a month cheaper than those so it's not like more of that stuff gets built and people leave our buildings and say oh it's fine i'll just pay 50 percent more in rent like they're not they're looking to go from a place that was you know they're going to trade up it'll be from a 1200 dollars rental with no laundry to like one of ours with laundry in the unit for you know mm -hmm. 1500 or something mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. so yeah so phoenix yeah phoenix dallas austin is where we want to play phoenix i, I, I really that's my favorite market where that has the it's a high growth market uh, I think historically, you know, rents have grown uh, from 2013 to 2019. So that's a time period I like to talk about because you have no COVID bump. And because uh, obviously they went up a ton since then. But rents grew 7.3% a year in Phoenix from 2013 to 2019. From 2005 to 2019, they grew 4% a year. So it's a high growth market and it has the best property tax arrangement in the entire country. There is a 5% per year assessed value cap on the property so uh like arguably california has the best uh you know system where there you have uh, no increase they just mark it to what you paid and leave it there um but uh in phoenix if you sell it they don't change it so we have a um so you you really you you raise the rents you push up your noi and then the next buyer takes full advantage of that as well where in all these other markets, maybe you do that, but then they they move the assessed value to the sale price, and it doesn't really help you on the on the exit. So you mm -hmm. can create. Uh, that's why Phoenix often has been, you know, in the last ten years, has been one of the highest appreciated markets in the country. And this is a relatively new uh, new setup for them. It's I think it's called Rule A, and it passed in like twenty fifteen or sixteen. So it's not. It hasn't always been like that. Um, so it's they, this 5% assessed value cap. So, um, and then Texas, you know, or at least we'll say Dallas and Austin specifically, um, we did, we have a, a, a market model that we, um, one of the guys who works for me, his hobby is sports analytics. And we pulled in uh, all the variables you'd want to, um, that are important. So population growth, uh, apartment fundamentals, single family, uh, housing data job job data job growth everything you'd want and then you figured out what's correlated and back tested it and the number one thing correlated with um multifamily appreciation is job growth as a percentage and austin texas has been the number one job growth market as a percentage uh for the long for a very long time and by a by a big factor it was like <laughs> two over two standard deviations above the national average uh Raleigh was like the next biggest uh, job growth as percentage market, but not even close to Austin. So Austin has been number one as percentage growth for any of these like larger cities for population and jobs. Um, I know Boise, Idaho was up there, but that's uh, a small market. And then just seemed kind of 
bubbly for for our liking. But um, but anyways, that, that and then Dal, yeah, or jump in, Rob. Yeah, I was going to say that that brings me to a question. What is your team? Because it sounds like that, that's cool. You guys didn't go to an outside source to get that data. You actually pulled it in house. What does your team look like today? So uh, you have me. We have me, and then uh, two acquisitions uh, guys, and then one of them was the one who made the model. So the three of us, we work with the brokers. We get the deals. We also do call owners off market and have relationships with owners directly. But you know, I've, I've maybe bought two or three deals that way, and then the other, you know whatever 40 were from through brokers so um and then and then we have uh a, a couple accounting people and then one asset manager who only works on the deals post after closing got so. it and you know it sounds like uh, it sounds like it takes time in between getting some of these deals right like you haven't bought a deal in the last like year you said Correct. right is that is that been unusual for you guys? Were you guys just doing a lot more deals last few years and then in the last year, it's been more difficult. And I guess what I'm arriving at, at, at is how are you creating what I would call your active income in the business? Um, obviously, you've you've got this portfolio and you're paying yourself now from this portfolio and you're obviously paying your investors as well from that portfolio. But is there anything that you guys are doing also to create more active income with, within the business? Really? Really, we're not. You know, the the these deals are all about uh, what they what they make. So I'm doing this. I'm uh, I'm raising money. I'm I'm doing the deals because I invest in them. But also, you know, I get an incentive fee if the deal makes over eight uh, percent IRR. Then I start getting to share of the profits. And then if it goes above twelve, I, I get a, a a larger share from there. So I'm doing it just for what the deals make. And so yeah, at a time like this, the last. Um, 12 months or yeah, our operating companies lost money, you know, where, but the properties have made, have made money. So I still have money coming in from the properties where I'm a, I'm an owner at different percentages and $200 million of property. So don't, you know, cry for me that the operating company lost money, <laughs> but you know, we, we charge you know, some fees, but those are, um, you know, for, for the operating company to make money, we really, we need to be acquiring properties, mm-hmm. but I don't want to, I don't, push deals just for that reason along sure. like it's i'm fine with how it's going and yeah normally we were uh, i was buying one to five deals a year i'd say was mm-hmm. kind of the the cadence uh, that would be probably our average my our average was three since 2009 probably three deals a year i'd say and yeah we'd spend all year looking at deals looking at a thousand deals to buy three you know probably mm-hmm. the um the math on that and so we're still doing the same thing. The only trouble is now you look at it and the one we liked, it doesn't make enough. Then you pass on it. You know, we still bid on it, but then we got outbid. So it's just been a year of getting, you know, outbid on things and, you know, change the f- opportunities that come up. So um, it would be, it would be uh, obviously better to be generating more um, active income, but I don't want to uh, fee these deals to, to death either. You know, we charge sure. an acquisition fee. Uh, and then uh, asset management fee on some of the deals, not all of them, depends on what the incentive fee arrangement was. And then, and that's about it. So um, there's not a lot of fees, uh, but I'm, I'm getting distributions from every deal, you know, mm-hmm. unless it's under renovation then there's no cash flow while we're renovating. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, so it's really more about property ownership and just getting um, exposure to the upside for me. Got it. How do you guys work with your investors? What does that look like? So some of the deals that uh, that we've done, or most of them, was a one investor in each deal. So the first 
2009 to 2019, I actually just had one investor and we bought about, we bought a hundred million dollars of property together. He invested less than 10 million, but we just through doing the refinances and doing good deals and selling some, then doing 1031 exchanges in exchanges into bigger deals. We built that portfolio up and then 2019 to 2021, same thing with another investor bought about a hundred million dollars of property. And just sort of recently in the last couple of years, I started syndicating deals. So mm -hmm. then taking out, cause I'd have people come up to me or not come up to me that I knew and say, I'd want to, you know, I want to invest 50,000 or hundred thousand. Like how, how could we do that? And I actually would say, I can't, I'm really just set up, got this one person or two, you know, I call them, they throw in 2 million bucks. It's, you know, it's just, it's a setup for that. I know how much they want to invest, what we're looking for. It's, um, it's, Sure, nice, you don't. It, you know, you don't have to herd cats. You've got one central person, <laughs> but there, but there's also sometimes risk associated with having just, just one. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, and and so um, and and so I wanted to, you know, ex uh, expand the business, and then also too, like, offer something to those folks. Like some of them, it's like my brother-in-law, and like people like that. Uh, um, other people who bought properties in Chicago, they saw we were doing deals well, and were like, "Can we just invest? We don't. It's a lot of work." doing the deals mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and so yeah so we we have a list of uh investors and you know if anybody wanted to join it you just go to our website brandonman.com and click invest now and sign up and then when we have a deal to uh to invest in we send it out to our list and then it's just first come first serve and you have to be a, in a an accredited investor and we since i talk about it on uh podcasts and whatnot it, you need to verify also they're accredited so then um, we just do that with like a third party website. It's easy for them to do, but, um, so yeah, then folks invest in the deals they get, it's, uh, you know, they're members of the LLC we use to buy the property. And so that gives them uh, direct property ownership. So they get, uh, cash flow and also, you know, all the depreciation and all these tax breaks people talk about, you know, that's all taken at the LLC level and you're a member of it. So then you're, you get your share of that. So a lot of these deals, they don't throw off any taxable income. Uh, while we own them and then they and then they're distributing cash so mm -hmm. it's really a tax advantaged investment where you have cash flow and it's uh you know appreciation and re returns are high the the downside is the you know it's not liquid so mm -hmm. if you need your money out there's not a mechanism to do that we use the investment dollars to buy the property and then those that money can't be returned till we sell so how long is it are you finding on average five years ten years or is it, or is it like, guys, we're going to hold this for 20 years. What's, what's kind of the, it, yeah, it depends on some of the deals where it's just one investor. I mean, we have had, uh, uh, I mean, some deals we've owned for 13 years with no plans of selling them, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at this point. And then, uh, on the deals we've sold, the average hold period was five years. And on the new deals where we're syndicating, we're, uh, the average, the, the business plan we're, we're promoting is a five-year hold. So I think. Is money real estate is more about making money slowly. So I would like personally, I would um I'd like to be raising money in like 10 or 20 year periods and just say, what we're gonna do, we're gonna do one deal, do the value add, then we're gonna sell it, then we're gonna do 1031 into another deal. We're gonna do that and then do that again and do like three of them. Cause we've done that just with the the one check investors and we've turned, you know, one million into two, then two into four, and then four into eight. Like that's how we went. We bought a hundred million of property with mm -hmm. less than ten million dollars in. Um, so I'd like to try to do that in a, like a syndication style thing. So that's mm -hmm. something we're working on now, where it's almost would be like a a mini fund of sorts. It's like you like this deal, 
then you invest. But then the business plan is instead of just returning the money in three or five years, we're going to just do a 1031. So no tax, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. If we can't find that same kind of deal, then then we're we're done. We'll return the money, but assume, but we can, we'll find it and we'll be on to the next one. So that's something I'd like to start doing. I love that. What's your trigger to, to, to determine, yes, we're going to sell it now? Like at what point do you determine, okay, we're going to sell it? Well, with the with the ones we have sold where there wasn't a defined business plan, it was just when you felt it was really topped out. Mm-hmm. So where your rents feel like they're above market or you're worried your property taxes are going to get uh, raised on this one in particular because uh, you saw that on a similar building happen. That's really been when we've sold. It's where rents are above market or we're getting some sort of, uh, we think like we're getting overpaid on a property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd say really that, and then uh, a couple we've sold have just been because they've been small. Like the deal I sold earlier this year was a one and a half million dollar five unit. It was the first deal I ever did a syndication on, um, and you know I just had uh, two investors in it. You know, and so it was uh, good to try out and, and do it. And we you know doubled the money in you know, a five year hole, but it wasn't um, you know it's it's not that exciting anymore at this point for me to have a million and a half dollar property mm-hmm. you know with with mm-hmm. partners so we're mm-hmm. um so like that also i guess we sold that too because it was smaller and older mm-hmm. um maybe that one wasn't topped out that was so yeah and then i i mean we'd also be selling too um in the future because let's say we raise money on a five-year business plan and it's year five you know, and we told people we would sell in year five so got it we don't have to sell. I mean, like legally, it's 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 up to it's up to us uh, on the sell timing. We could sell early. We could sell a little later. But um, like a lot of these deals we bought in the last two or three years, we we put five year fixed rate loans on them, three and a half percent interest. We're just we're going to hold them to loan maturity, and odds are we're just sell them at that point. What do you um, have you done any research on Knoxville, Tennessee? Just curious. Well, I know Nashville is is one of our top markets when we did that analysis near term mm-hmm. it's going to struggle with that's literally the market with the most new supply nashville was going to s- struggle digesting that you know for a year or two but um just being in tennessee uh like i know it'll be strong it wasn't ba- we the model we made was for the 53 biggest markets in knoxville i don't think is in the 53 biggest markets mm-hmm. so that wasn't in our model but i know it's a good one so if you're doing something there um I'd be all for it. You know, these states with no state income tax are just booming with business relocations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Arizona has a state income tax, but it's very low and their property taxes are peanuts. So you get, uh, you're, you're getting a similar effect there and all the people from California moving out. But yeah, these Texas and Florida and Tennessee and the, all the other ones with no state income tax, they're just really benefiting. So I would, um, so I, I think Knoxville is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we started we started a, a team, a business in in Knoxville, and I'm excited about it. I see a lot of opportunity there. I see a lot of growth there, and um, and you know, I know Nashville's been hot for some time. So I was like, okay, well, let's let's look at Knoxville, a little bit smaller, but um, still going to benefit from that for sure. For sure. What size deals are you guys buying there? We work. We so we run. That's our brokerage team. So we run a brokerage oh, nice. team, and we work with investors to help them buy assets that are there. So, you know, we've got a guy right now that just bought 20, right? And um, 20 units. Nice. And so we, we just want to continue doing more of those. And and what I'm telling them is they should also be identifying some of those to buy and hold for themselves or for, for us, for, for people within the network. For sure. 
So if we run across anything interesting, Drew, we'll we'll call you. We'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Anything five million plus, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, we'll take a look at least. So Okay. Well, uh, a couple things. Um, I'd love to turn this more on uh on a personal note, if that's okay with you, right? Yeah. Where what are you building? Like when you think about, you know, you're doing all this stuff, you're young, probably thinking about the future, right? What are you doing? What are you building? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And because uh, I, I, I already have enough money and uh, I still work a lot. And I think what I what I am doing is I, I want to challenge myself. You know, I got off to this early start. And then I uh, also then I picked up a, a large investor early and we we did great uh, together and still are doing deals together. Um but I don't want to then be like, okay, then I was 35, I'm 37 now, and just be like, no, nah, I just was chilling for the next 60 years. Like, I don't want to, uh, one thing I believe in, like, with the way medical advancements are going, by the time I'm, like, 100, I don't think, I think that might be pretty normal for people to be mm-hmm. living a lot longer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just thinking about my grandparents, they've had stuff happen to them where probably if it was, like, 50 years ago, they would have um, not survived it. And then it's just, you know, uh, like, this with the way healthcare is going. So I think, um, you know, I just, I just didn't want to be like, Oh, I took my foot off the gas, like, you know, so early and then you're 50 and you're like, yeah. So it's a weird motivation to say that's almost like a don't regret things or don't, uh, but that's been, that's been a motivation for sure. And then to a lot of the business so far has been, uh, pretty much every deal we found, uh, I say we, but then I am interchanging. I, cause I, I found the deals where I was always the, I didn't, I didn't have any employees other than for accounting and property management until 2019. Mm. So I found every deal I did it. I was the one to saying, Hey, let's move this lease expiration to May to do these things I'm talking about. Um, so I'd like to build a company that's like, that's a real company. That's what I'm working on now where we have these acquisition guys. I mean, I want to get them to the point where they're, you know, they already talk to the brokers and underwrite the deals, but can be can can really also see what I'm seeing and then turn this to a real business where it's not just um you know me making most of the decisions and have a have not only leverage from like you know debt let's say but also operating leverage from other people and build a real company mm-hmm. so that's actually what I'm more focused on than I know a lot of people in real estate they talk about legacy or passing things on down to their kids and whatnot and and I have a five year old son and so I you know I think about that stuff but I also think like how do I I don't even know if he's going to like real estate. You know, it's not. <laughs> it's weird to think like, yeah, I'll just take it over and be running this portfolio and do be you know me 2.0. Maybe he wants to do like art or something. And it's just because I, I do see that from people we buy from because it's like, oh yeah, dad was building a nice portfolio, then he passed away and his kids just are dumping the properties and they don't care. So I don't. I'm not thinking too much about like legacy or all this or people will say you're a real estate mogul or titan or all these things to me that are just kind of funny you know i i'm mm-hmm. still surprised um how things have gone i was surprised that i bought uh two million dollars of property to be honest when i was in college and uh, that i have 200 million now is kind of crazy and it would be easy like with how we have it set up we'll be we'll be we'll have a billion dollar portfolio at some point and it um it's just kind of surreal and so i just want to keep going with that journey and see where i can get it to yeah and 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 like you said just building a business right that's sustainable but by the way it's my daughter's 21 she's an artist right yeah she has no interest in real estate um 
but you know, it, and it's one of those things where for me, it's about building a business that operates uh, uh, that I'm able to pour into my people who want to build something right long-term. Um, so it's cool. It's cool to hear you say that, right? Cause I, I, I get that. Is there an investor or is there a business that you look to out there that you're like, you know what? I love what they're doing, right? Is there any North star for you out there? Yeah. I don't know if it's a North star, but it's definitely uh, watching Barry Stern like talk, mm-hmm. uh, Starwood capital, mm-hmm. any video he's done and has been recorded and posted to YouTube. I've watched any interview, all these keynotes he's given this little sit down fireside chats. I've seen them all. He's so smart and I've learned so much. I, I have an undergrad degree in real estate and I've probably learned as much uh, as that just watching things on YouTube and not, I'm not, and not from the YouTube videos where someone's got like a whiteboard out and explaining how does this work more just the insights, these people at the top of the real estate industry, people like Barry Sternlich, Sam Zell, of course, where he, you know, he just passed away. But I mean, those two guys, especially, and all the things you can find online, this talks of you, there's so many great insights in there. So, so yeah, um, so I, I loved Sam's book, you know, am I being too subtle? If anybody yeah. hasn't read that book, but you know what? I didn't know that Sam passed away. When did he pass away? Like he must've like just a month, passed away. a month ago. Yeah. Maybe not even. <clears throat> yeah, at the end, yeah, at the uh, end, end of May. So, you know, um, yeah, talk about a renegade for sure. And uh, man, very similar story to your story when I when I <laughs> kind of draw it right. Like, yeah, people similar. say that, but he he actually was way ahead of me. Where he had a apartment business out of Michigan when he was in college too. But then when he asked what what was it, he was managing literally like a thousand apartments with his managing company and bought like dozens of deals. And, uh, you know, I, I bought, uh, two duplexes and two, three units. So I was going, but I didn't, I didn't have like the second biggest management company in, Anna, in, uh, in Madison, like he did up in Ann Arbor. So, um, but yeah. yeah, he, he got started young and just kept, uh, kept going. And yeah, he's, I knew a couple of guys who worked for him cause I was, he was lived in Chicago for so long and he was, yeah, really big on education and the guys who worked for him just learned so much. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting because he said something like we always felt cash poor, right? Um, because they were just constantly plowing money into new projects. And so yeah, it was always, but I, I, what I, what I like about Sam is that he took the discipline and he went into other businesses that were outside of real estate, but he, he just saw it, you know, he saw yeah. it. Yeah. He got it. It's a, he, it's interesting here in those early stories too, where, like one of the first real estate deals he did, it was a hotel in Reno and there was no, there were no like hotel brokers, I guess. It was like, he just heard about it from a person they wanted to sell, but they just, so they just offered like whatever they wanted. It's like, you know, back in the seventies, whenever that was, yeah, that would have been, that was the time to buy where it's, uh, you know, I don't know, let's offer a 20 cap and to see what happens. And, you know, whereas, um, very interesting. We're now mar- real estate is definitely a lot more efficient, mm-hmm. so it's harder to generate those kind of returns compared to back then. Hearing those stories, so well, let's let's circle back to to YouTube real fast. Um, obviously, you you went you went to school specifically for for real estate, but you know, my wife uh, who didn't go to college, she always says she went she she went to YTU University, right? YouTube <laughs> University. That's where she's learned just about everything, and she 
she helped us early on, like, you know, in a couple of years, we had 300, 300 properties in our management and my wife like did all that stuff. Right. Nice. Um, but I'm curious, like what advice would you give somebody today? Your younger self, actually, let, let, let's ask that question. What advice would you give? You're, you're, all, you're already damn young. You're 37. You're young, right? What advice would you give to your 22-year-old self, right, at this point, knowing what you know? Well, I, maybe I'll answer it a slightly different. These are the things that I actually I did, but I didn't realize I was doing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love I, that. Yeah, because I, I was going to say something unconsciously, around being... Unconsciously competent. So let's talk was, about that. I was going to say something about being curious and asking questions, but I'm like, but I already did all, I did that. But one thing that I think that really set me apart, because uh, I see this in other people that are doing real estate, where they're kind of acting like they already know how things work when they don't. You can kind of tell they're responding that they're kind of uh, putting up a, a front almost of sorts, or they don't, they don't really know. And they're just kind of saying words and talking about it. Mm-hmm. But so I never did that. I always, if I didn't know how something worked, I always would literally say that. I'd, mm-hmm. I've never seen that before. How does that work? Mm-hmm. And someone I know, mm-hmm. he he complimented me and he's like, where did you learn that line? And I was like, what line? The thing where I just said, I, how does it work? He's like, yeah. And it never like crossed his mind. Like, why don't, why would you ask someone like that? You look like you don't know, but yeah, but I want to know. And I don't think that's weird that I don't know it. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions, you know, learn from questions. Uh, and then be curious about how things work, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing where I've always, you know, I'll, I'll have these phone calls with brokers or other owners or just other people. And I'm always taking notes and they're, I, I rarely reference them, but it's like, I, um, I'm really learning a lot in these conversations mm-hmm. even. And so mm-hmm. I think being curious, asking questions is, is like, has been a huge, uh, huge thing for me. And then also my, my mindset. You know, I always, one thing that my, my dad said to me a, a lot or said enough was that you create your own reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful where, you know, a lot of these people, if you just, if you, if you look at some of these like highly successful people in investing or real estate, or, you know, you look at like a Sam Zell or something, I mean, that for the most part, he's just a regular guy who liked wheeling and dealing. He was selling magazines as a kid and then doing apartment deals, but he just really went for it. He wasn't afraid to, you know, take some big swings and, uh, you know, put all his money on the line. And like, that was really, that's the difference where like these people where, uh, maybe you're learning about investing in real estate, but you didn't, you haven't done anything yet. Like that, the money's made in the action. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if a lot of these, you know, I wonder what the percentage of people would be where they read the book by Gary Eldred that I read. And then they went out and bought a property. Because mm-hmm. I literally read that book and figured I already I this is all I need to know. I don't I don't need to read another book about investing uh to get started. Like I have the I understand how it works and now I need to I need to invest my money and learn like in the real world. Mm-hmm. So sort of that um that would be my advice for for young people. I at the time I was just kinda acting how I acted, you know, where I didn't uh I didn't have any pedigree or wasn't from a fancy school or anything you know i went to all public schools for the most part like it wasn't i didn't have any reason to have like a act like i was uh i, I knew everything because i i do see that and that's like a real that'll really hold you back like just be humble don't have an ego ask the questions learn and um yeah so like that that would be all my sort of advice for the young you know i'm gonna I'm, go- I'm gonna double down on that a little bit um i think 
if I'm being fully transparent, right, one of the one of the number one things that I noticed over the years of people that within our industry that like really accomplished unbelievable things within five years, right? Like it takes it takes like 10 years to build something, right? Like five to 10 years to build something. And I saw the people that that built things rapidly were really good at being okay asking questions, right? Like, I just don't understand. Tell me more about that. How does that work? Yeah. And they were always like picking my brain about how things work, right? And the ones that picked my brain and, and, and then they went out and took action. Picked my brain and then went out and took action. And I remember... I remember then thinking, wow, I don't do that enough. Like I always felt like I needed I needed to get to a certain level before I earned the right to ask the question. I don't know where I got that from. And I remember mm. thinking, that's not good. Like if I want to go out and accomplish the things I want to accomplish, I need to be okay with just asking more questions, right? And and always being the student. And um, and people want to help, right? People want to help. For sure. People want to help. Um, so you only have one, Drew, you only have one five-year-old? No more kids? That's no, correct. Yeah, right. I didn't die. Yeah, and I only only one. We'll see if we have more or not. Okay. Happened, so. Okay. Yeah, we only have one too. Um, what haven't I asked you that you think is important for people to understand about you, your business, what you're building, how to think about this? Well, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think we touched on a lot of a lot of good stuff on on my end. I think one thing to think about in knowing who your your listeners are and what you do is, you know, a lot of this stuff with real estate it almost sounds like it's too good to be true. Like the returns are high, the cash flow is high. Like what's there's tax breaks, but it really is like that. the The downside is that it's not liquid, so that's in part why the returns are high because all the people that need their money in a month or a year or even in tears, they, they can't invest in this stuff. So then there's if there's less investors in something, the returns have to, uh, you know have the opportunity to be higher because there's less people bidding on that that uh, thing. So obviously a lot of people do invest in real estate, but I mean, real estate is a really powerful tool. And if you're looking at trying to build for retirement, I mean, there's one, uh, a lot of times I think of this, when I was first starting out, I did especially, if, if you're kind of on the fence about real estate, imagine like you buy, so you buy, let's make up some round numbers here, a, uh, a half million dollar property. You put the down payment down. It's a, it's a rental property, so it's cash flow positive. The rents are, exceed the expenses. If you hold that property for 30 years, it's going to, I would say conservatively, it'll double in value. It'll be worth a million. And you've paid your loan off. So you've just made a million dollars. You still, I guess, would have your equity in it, but not including all the cash flow. Like it's, such a powerful long-term tool for making money where that's almost your worst case scenario is I just, it breaks even for 30 years, which has probably never happened on a property. It's gone that it's always gone better than that. And then you pay it off and it's double. I mean, that's really something. And I don't know what the annual return is on that, but there's not a lot of things where at the end, you know, it's okay. I put down, uh, I'll say it's a, a, a duplex for a half million. I'm not, depends where you are on prices, mm -hmm. but um, you put, you know, a hundred thousand, fifty thousand down. You're twenty xing or ten xing your money, turning that into a million, not including any cash flow. I mean, where, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people that it's that's how they've 
plan for their retirement. So it's interesting where if you're thinking about investing in real estate, I mean, it's it really is as good as it sounds that there's there's work involved. And so if you can't do the work, then, yeah, that's why people take on investors, because there's there I see more good deals than I could buy all with my own money. So then mm-hmm. I take on investors. Um, so if you if you can do the work, I mean, I think the best way to do it is buy properties directly, you know, kind of like what you're talking about, where you have a, a property in Knoxville, you could buy and be the direct owner. But you then you need to manage the management company. You need to make a lot of decisions. You need to be reviewing things. And when expenses get something's too expensive on a re- repair, you need to be the one complaining and mm-hmm. fighting, if you will, with the management company. Mm-hmm. So if, if you don't want to be doing any of that, like then you should be a passive investor in someone else's deal. But I mean, I would just really it is like how people say it is. And like that first book I read and it's but it's it's in part because of the, the illiquid nature where like that's there, there are downsides where it's, you can't get your money out if you need it. So Drew, when, when, when looking at other multifamily owners that are out there and you see where people kind of have gone wrong, because, you know, I think there's good operators and there's bad operators, right? Um, what, like what, what are some of the common things that you see that people just have messed up? Right. Is there any? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of things. Um, yeah. I mean, the main things actually, I, I, I mean, three come to mind and some of these are, uh, it's sometimes very simple, but it is really important what you pay and it's really hard to pass on deals. You know, like we haven't bought anything in a year. Like I told you, I'm adding money to pay for the employees and technology and software. Like it would have been great to buy that deal in Tempe, Mm -hmm. but I'm not doing anyone any help by buying a deal that makes, uh, you know, 10% a year. I mean, that's, you know, um, that's not the outsized returns people are trying to get from real estate. So we pass on that deal, but then, you know, whoever we see a lot of deals where they make less than 10% when we underwrite them and they're selling all the time. And, like, so they, those deals are sort of doomed from the start, if you will, because they paid mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. and it's, it's hard. You also, you get that there are 10 offers and they do another round of bidding and then you raise your bid and you can get kind of, uh, I really want the property. And then they over, they overpay, uh, that, and then also people not matching up their loan with their business plan, uh, in 2019 and 2020, uh, I bought, I think three or four deals and they were all loan assumptions mm-hmm. where, People put on loans in 2008 or 2005 when interest rates are in the fours with a yield maintenance prepay, which to just basically to get out of it at the time, they had to pay like it would have had to pay 20% of the loan balance to pay it off. Because these commercial loans, it's not like a, a home mortgage where there's no, you can just pay it off with no fee. These are our prepayment fees to pay it off early. So because they selected that loan product, when their business plan, like this was, these are all developers, they built the building. They rented it out and they put a loan on it and they put these ones with yield maintenance on it. And because that's the ones where you got the most proceeds that day, that's mm. why they chose it. Because again, with the debt service coverage thing I was talking about, the rate was a little lower because it was yield maintenance. So that may, allows you to get more money and pay a little less interest now. Mm-hmm. But then when it's time to sell, they're jammed up by this loan. And then these deals were all acquired off market because they went to their broker and said like, hey, I want to sell this, but someone needs to assume my loan. You got anybody? And these were all Freddie and Fannie loans. I've done at that point, I had done over 25 of them. All the brokers know that about me. And they said, okay, let's, uh, we'll, we'll send it to probably a couple guys. This is probably what they did. And I ended up, 
that deal I just sold that I bought in 2018, loan assumption, 2019, 2020. Um, and those were great deals for us because we were bidding against basically nobody saying, mm -hmm. oh, you got this high interest rate in the fours. Like we need, we, um, we obviously can't pay as much uh, as if we could put our own loan on it. We're putting more down than usual on some of these. And so we really wrote our own ticket on those. Mm -hmm. And then it's also kind of comical in a way, then rates, you know, go up a few years later. And, you know, we literally were getting, you know, 10% plus discounts on these things because of the bad debt on them that was so unattractive being a 4% interest rate. Yeah, know? it's crazy, right? It's like perspective on on all of it. Well, and you, I guess you you said you just you just sold that. How long, what were the adjustments on on that, those assumptions? Like when when were those going to adjust or were they going to adjust? Like They're not adjustable. They're fixed rate. Uh, because they were because so, they were a Fannie and Freddie product. Yeah, correct. Right. They okay. they yeah. all did they all did uh, ten year fixed yield maintenance loans. Uh, I, one was a step down prepay, mm. um, so then it didn't have yield maintenance. It was just you know five percent the first two years and four percent then three percent just kind of stepping down. And then we mm -hmm. sold it in uh, probably year eight of the loan, and we I would pay it a two percent prepay to uh, pay that one off at the end. But um, so yeah, that worked. Uh, so those have all worked out well. For okay. sure. Well, Drew, I appreciate your time. Like that, this has been awesome. It's been an education. Um, yeah, thanks, Rob. It's been great. I'm gonna I'm I'm go read "Investing in Real Estate" by Gary. What's his last name? Eldred, Eldred. Uh, like E L D R E D, maybe. You said it was a uh, an old book, right? But uh, yeah, they're old. still selling on Amazon. I buy it for people all the time. It's almost actually almost like a test. I do like here's the book, and then it's it's not expensive, ten bucks. So. I'll, I'll ask them and I'll either buy it. Some people, depends on who they are, or I'll just tell them about it and then I'll ask like if they they read it or not. Are they read, yeah. And so, so far, only I think one person in my team read it. Are you saying, so, well, I'm going to read it. Like I'm going to go, I'll actually, I, if it's on, is it on Audible? Probably not. I'm not Probably. sure. I'm in okay. the same boat as you. If it's just a physical book, I got too busy to read. But I, when I read it, I was just reading the book. It's, you know, I remember the I'll read it. cover. Like, now they got a new edition where it's white. So. I'm a I'm a I'm a big reader, so I, I'll I'll definitely make sure to read it. So, Drew, if anybody wants to 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 find you, to to do their due diligence on you, to invest in you, where do where do they go? What do they do? Yeah, if you want to uh, learn about our company, or you know, get on our investor list, or just even our company newsletter, you can go to brennaman.com. So, B as in boy, R E N E M A N. dot com. That's all there. We have a blog. We have the invest now. Thing. So you can sign up to be on our investor list. We also have a passive investing guidebook you can download so that it's a hundred page uh, PDF where we cover everything uh, possible about real estate investing and passive real estate investing. So what to look for when you're investing in other people's deals, how to vet sponsors, what's a waterfall, what are these fees? There's a glossary in the back about every all these real estate terms that everyone uses so much jargon. And so that's all in there. Uh, and then if you, I, I also have a podcast, it's called the Brenneman Blueprint. Mm -hmm. And so that's on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Yeah. And so it's a real estate investing podcast. So it's less about, um, these are all for people that have already decided more or less they want to invest in real estate and learn about it. So it's a lot of active investors talking about what they're doing. And then I, I have some episodes for passive investors too. It's about a 50-50 mix. Um, but a lot of the passive ones are just me solo talking about what to look for or what to do and then lastly i guess on social media uh i think everywhere i'm at drew brenneman and i even just recently opened up a tiktok account so i've been posting Ooh. clips yeah 
hooks on there. My yeah, my sister works in social media for uh, Kendra Scott, the jewelry company. And oh she's yeah, like, TikTok. You gotta you gotta get on it. That's uh, everyone's there, not just uh, you know teenagers anymore. Um, and so that's you know so we've been posting podcast clips there and uh, in you know Twitter. Twitter is you know a really good real estate community of people on there. Um, so mm-hmm. I like to talk to people about what they're up to and talk about what we're seeing day to day on there as well. So. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate your time. It's been an education and I'm glad we were able to meet. Thanks. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye-bye.